الجزيرة بودكاست. Hi there, Malika Bilal here. I'm handing the mic this week to my Al Jazeera colleague, Kevin Hurden. Enjoy. The countdown is on for another Women's World Cup. And one thing is clear. This time from the spot, a penalty to win it for England. It's Kelly! Women's football has arrived. In recent years, the women's game has truly taken flight with record crowds. Look at that attendance. Over 91,000 fans inside this stadium. Record ratings. FIFA forecast a total global audience of one billion viewers. And enough star power to rival the men. Sam Kerr has made history again. She's the first female football on the cover of global edition of FIFA's popular video game. The 2023 Women's World Cup, co-hosted by Australia and New Zealand, kicks off in July. The spotlight has never been brighter, and advocates hope it will highlight the many unresolved issues that have plagued the women's game for decades. The team says it's not treated as equals alongside the national men's team. There has been multiple accusations of bullying, misbehavior, and sexism. This is clearly an area in which women footballers are treated as second-class citizens. So, is the Women's World Cup ready for its close-up? I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Steph Young. I'm a staff writer for The Athletic. I've been covering women's soccer for, I want to say, eight or nine years now. And this will be my third World Cup that I'm going to cover in some capacity. So, Steph, what are some of the big storylines you'll be following? Well, this World Cup is a little different from previous World Cups. FIFA finally expanded the number of teams to 32 total teams, and they'll be playing in eight groups of four. And they've recently announced they've expanded the prize money available. This year, the Women's World Cup is getting $150 million in prize money. That's a 300% increase from 2019. However, the $150 million is still only about a third of the $440 million the men got in Qatar in 2022. I'm very excited to watch, as I know you are, too. Who do you like to win it all, and are there any sleepers that we should know about? I mean, that is the classic question every soccer writer gets asked before a World Cup, right? Obviously, the United States are favorites. I feel like by saying that, I've instantly doomed them to wash out in quarters, but we'll see. The jinx. England, another strong favorite. England are Euro 2022 champions for the first time. I would say Australia and Brazil other contenders there. France, that's interesting. France, here's Henri. They've previously been a team that has kind of disappointed themselves and others by looking great. That is the earliest goal ever in the opening match at a Women's World Cup. And then promptly choking or falling apart. And France fall short yet again. If we're looking at a sleeper. Dark horse, give me your dark horse. My darkest horse is Canada, unfortunately. (laughs) They are the gold medal holders, but they're dealing with a lot of injuries. If they somehow make it, it's going to be another like epic 
wow, how do they make it sort of thing. And in terms of scale, how big is this expected to be? Well, Australia, and I believe uh, Football New Zealand as well, they've sold over a million tickets. The numbers surrounding this tournament are huge. Not since the Sydney Olympics has Australia staged such a global sporting event. FIFA recently said that they keep having to make more tickets available for sale. I don't know why you wouldn't have expected that in the first place. Yeah, it does seem like they're lagging behind the public. Like, let, let's take Australia, for example, which is co-hosting. The team's captain is a player named Sam Kerr, and if our listeners don't know who she is now, they will soon, because she is the face of women's football globally. Sam Kerr makes her way through, looks to dance and get the shot away. Oh, it's a brilliant goal from Sam Kerr. And she's the first woman to be featured on the cover of FIFA. So what does that tell us about how far the women's game has come? With Sam Kerr in particular, she's 29 years old. She's kind of at the peak of her powers. She's been popping off for Chelsea recently. What kind of money is she making at Chelsea? Do you know? Well, money has improved, particularly in some teams in Europe, for England and France in particular, where you can kind of start to make, quote unquote, real money. You're not making a Messi salary, but I would bet It's a mid to high six figures, which it's a little telling that that's considered quite good in the women's game. Yeah, I'd I'd like to talk about pay equality briefly, just because I know it's a big issue here that, that kind of differentiates it from the Men's World Cup. Two of the teams that have pushed back really pretty hard are right in your backyard, the U.S. and Canada. And I wonder if you could tell us about those two examples. Sure. I think the United States women's national team has been embroiled in this kind of very public back and forth negotiation with U.S. soccer over a collective bargaining agreement and wanting to be compensated equitably with what the men get. 28 members of the women's soccer team alleging they were paid less than a third of their male counterparts in bonuses, writing, this is true even though their performance has been superior to that of the male players. Now that women's football has picked up steam and popularity, they're saying, okay, we can start moving towards the men's model, which is where you get compensated per appearance. You get a bonus for being rostered. You get a bonus for actually playing in games. You get a bonus for winning, that sort of thing. So that's where we've arrived, where like the teams for, for now seem satisfied. They have much more equitable treatment, not just in terms of money, but in terms of you know per diems. That there was a, a difference in per diems sometimes, where men got more money literally to just go to dinner. Jesus. So now we come to Canada. Yeah. You might have heard that the Canadian women's national team went on strike earlier this year against their own federation. The women say they've seen their training cut, number of players and coaching staff reduced. They want the same opportunities as the men's team received ahead of their World Cup. This is the gold medal Olympic winning team. They're ranked top 10 in the world. Wow. So players from USA, Brazil, and Japan all express solidarity with the players because this comes back to what we talked about earlier. There's a global realization that players have more power than they think, mm. especially now. And if they band together, then you know that's their best hope of creating actual change. Well, so money is just one of the problems. Another problem is that players 
sometimes don't feel safe on their own teams. I mean, look at the host country, the Australian team. A few years ago, the coaches fired. A report from the Players Association, the PFA, talking of a toxic culture inside the Matildas camp. And then you have the story of France and Spain, which are top teams. I mean, we're talking fifth and sixth ranked teams in the world, also having disputes just this year with their sports federations complaining about bullying and mistreatment. I mean, it just, the list goes on. Can, can we try to unpack a few of these? Maybe we start with the French team. Yeah, France was very interesting. There have been four years allegations that the previous coach, Corinne Diacre, created a pretty hostile environment for at least some players. And it culminated when the captain, French icon, Wendy Renard, said she's not going to play at the World Cup if Diacre stays in charge. I think it's also spurred on by Noel Legrate, who was in charge of the Francis Soccer Federation. He had to resign in February. The 81-year-old had already taken a back seat uh, amid a legal investigation into sexual and moral harassment. His comments over the years regarding sexism, racism in football, that showed that he was truly out of touch. So that kind of like, I feel like, opens the door to also get rid of some more institutional roadblocks. Yeah, and then in Spain, similar problems. Yes. And this is an important Spanish team, right? This is like the golden generation of Spanish players. Kind of, yeah. Especially with, you know, it's centered around, obviously, their global superstar, Alexia Pateas. is the World Footballer of the Year. She is insane. Captain for Spain, captain for Barcelona. So last September 2022, 15 players go to the Spanish Federation, said, we no longer want you to consider us for rosters unless you make some changes. And the Federation kind of played it like, oh, these difficult players who have a clash with the coach. It was Jorge Vilda. Getting rid of coach Vilda won't come easy. His father, Angel, is the current head of the Spanish Federation's women's department. But they were saying, we never asked you to fire the coach. They wanted kind of like more fundamental changes in the Federation. Now Spain has named their preliminary squad. They did it earlier in June. And three of those 15 are on the preliminary roster. So something happened where maybe they realized, like, I have one shot at a World Cup. And we talked before about how players are not making, I'm set for the rest of my life money. Right. So maybe they're thinking, like, I got to pay the bills. Who knows what? I mean, Steph, so this is a mess. And these are the top teams. So I can only imagine the issues that lower ranked teams are facing. I mean, what are their chances of getting better protections and investment? <sighs> All right, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm settling back. I'm settling in for right. the answer. <laughs> Sequel episode, maybe. Yeah. Um, I spoke to New Zealand captain Allie Riley a while ago, and she said something which I thought was kind of the crux of it, which is the, the money that FIFA puts into rewarding teams for qualifying for the World Cup and getting into the group stage. She said that money has to be life-changing. Because from cycle to cycle, that's four years. So that World Cup money has to enable the Federation to invest in the logistics, right? Help players train and stay fit and win and develop so that they can improve over the next four years. And it has to enable these players to play full time. They can't have day jobs. They can't always be side hustling to make ends meet. Even in the United States, in the National Women's Soccer League, a lot of players still have side hustles because minimum salary is something like $35,000 a year. And depending on what market you live in, that's not really enough to pay the rent. 
There were players literally working at Trader Joe's bagging groceries in order to play professional soccer, right? Yeah. So you can only imagine what it's like for a country with, you know, a less developed or smaller economy. While women's players are still fighting for their rights on the pitch, one particular problem is forcing a long list of stars to miss the World Cup. Find out what after the break. On the Inside Story podcast this week, India's leader has suggested a full G20 membership for the African Union. We examine the timing of this call and what a potential membership will mean for the African continent. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This year's Women's World Cup is expected to be the most watched ever. And yet, football reporter Steph Young says decision makers at the top still seem unwilling to pay up for the product. You know, cultural attitudes within FIFA kind of about not caring about the women's game, which is still going on. We talk about FIFA asking for more money for broadcast rights for this World Cup, realizing, oh, there's money to be made here. But there's now been pushback, especially from some European countries. Uh, We did some reporting at The Athletic where Gianni Infantino from FIFA claims that some broadcasters from territories in what they call the Big Five, so that's Britain, France, Spain, Germany, Italy, some of these places were offering like 800,000 pounds for the broadcast rights. 800,000? 800,000, a six-figure for the broadcast rights for the World Cup. Just so you know, countries paid a total of $2.64 billion for the rights to broadcast the Men's World Cup last year. But I thought Moya Dodd, who used to play for Australia, had a really interesting point where she was like, you bundled these for decades and you trained people to only think about the value of the men's tournament. And so it's no surprise now that they're now resisting Mm. combined with cultural attitude towards like, this is not important. We don't need to invest in it. Let's talk about injuries, because I think this part of the discussion is really fascinating. We mentioned Sam Kerr, Australia's star striker. Mm -hmm. She'll be out there competing, but a lot of other stars will not be. Mm -hmm. And it's the same injury that keeps popping up, torn ACLs, which is a ligament in the knee. Leah Williamson, the England captain, suffered a ruptured anterior cruciate ligament. Ballon d'Or winner Alexis Pateyas has ruptured her ACL. Vivian Maidemar. Marie-Antoinette Catoto. Janine Baggy. Beth Mead suffered a ruptured anterior cruciate ligament. Why do you think this is more than just bad luck? I do want to say I at least don't have the data on whether there's actually more ACLs happening or if they've clustered But just to be clear, like, the data I've seen is women are six times more likely to suffer ACL injuries. Yes. That's what I've been looking at. Yes. So let's assume that that's true, and let's try to unpack some of the reasons that that's happening. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. One is currently, as we've said, there's more and more money to be found in women's football. But that means they're asking the players to play more and more games. And so the more you play, the higher the risk of your injury. That's compounded by the relative lack of resources for the women's game. So you're playing more games, but there's not a corroborating increase in investment in things like preventative training. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there has been some research on how to train players to prevent 
ACL injuries or to increase the ability of like your body's ability to resist an ACL injury. But you need to invest in that. You've got to hire a trainer who knows how to do that. And they've got to have a staff that they can do that for like 30 people. And then on the other end of that, an increase in resources for recovery for players after games. And then there is some thought that like the mechanics of how most women tend to be built does lend towards an increase in ACL injury just based on the movements they have to make, the cutting and the moving, the stopping. The middle of the knee joint has a notch in it. That notch might be smaller in women, and that's where the ACL lives. So there is some thought about like the musculoskeletal arrangement of most women's bodies kind of like lends to that. But that's the point. It's thought, right? Because only 6% of all sports research is done on women. So we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it lends to like, you need to hire trainers. You need to do the research. You've got to invest. A lot of this boils down to money and someone thinking to spend the money on the women. Right. And, And also equipment, right? Cleats too, or boots, I guess. Most women will convert their shoe size and shop for boots in the men's or even children's section if their feet are small enough, as there are hardly any soccer boots designed for women's feet. That might be part of it. There's increase now in gear being specifically designed for women's bodies from the cleats to, like, for example, shorts. You might not think about it, but like a lot of women have a wider pelvis and different structure, like with the legs. So, yeah, I think it's all related. It's an ecosystem of, like, not enough attention being paid to the women's side. So all the things we've talked about speak to this bigger issue. Women need different compensation. They need different safeguards. So maybe the next phase is recognizing that women's football is something apart. Is that fair? I think this is kind of an old chestnut, but people need to differentiate equality from equitable. Different people or different situations have different needs. And if you're trying to stamp a one-size-fits-all treatment on all of it, it's obviously going to have different results for different situations. The other side of this is that when you say maybe the women's game doesn't need to be more like the men's game, I think that also points us at there's serious problems in the men's game as well. We also need to be diagnosing some problems there, but that's for a different time. So you've been covering women's football for almost a decade. So are you optimistic? Where do you see this going? Where do you see this in another 10 years? I'm incredibly optimistic. I'm so optimistic. You look in the US, the NWSL has been alive now for 10 years. When you compare it to its predecessors, which both limped to three years each and then promptly collapsed like a flan in a cupboard. It's going on 10 years strong. The, you know, its teams are wanting to join. It's expanding pretty rapidly. And then we've seen the growth in the Women's World Cups. I don't want to say it's all doom and gloom. Like, we even look at some of the money involved. Sure, making 35 grand a year is not great. It's better than six grand a year, and it's going to grow every single year. But we've seen tremendous progress. Teams are unionizing or at least coming together for collective protest. They're realizing we do have some power here. So yes, I'm actually incredibly optimistic for the women's game. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Miranda Lynn with Chloe K. Lee, Sonia Bagat, David Enders, Ashish Malhotra, Nagin Oliai, Khalid Sultan, Amy Walters, and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal. 
Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexander Locke is the Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back 